Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Introvert Theater Podcast. This is Serge, and today's episode is going to be a little different. Um, a few months ago, I put out an Instagram story asking what people's favorite movie was and why. So today's episode is tackling one of those suggestions from one of my listeners. Uh, the movie that this listener suggested is The Nightmare Before Christmas by Tim Burton, uh, directed by Henry Salick, and my friend Sal suggested it, or Solomon Grundy, as I've been known to call him from time to time. Uh, Sal said in his comment on the film that I could talk about um, the score by Danny Elfman. Now, Sal being a musician... I would imagine that thought came naturally. Um, I have an acoustic that I dabble with from time to time, but I'm by no means anything remotely resembling a musician. <laughs> so I had to think about how to approach this. So as an avid uh, music listener and appreciator of various genres of music, I figured the best approach is to talk about what is being conveyed through the music and lyrics and... Um, how that sort of moves the plot forward. And, of course, we'll talk a bit about Tim Burton, uh, Danny Elfman, and his unique style and, and compositions. So, again, to start off with, the film was released in 1993, and while it wasn't directed by Tim Burton, it, it was conceived as a short three-page poem written by him. Along with his contribution, to, uh, the screenplay was adapted by Caroline Thompson, or Caroline Thompson, and had apparently passed through many other hands before completion. I, I guess they were constantly um, just kind of fixing it and adjusting things here and there. Uh, again, it was directed by Henry, Henry Selick and stars Chris Sarandon as Jack Skellington, with Danny Elfman doubling as Jack's singing voice. Uh, Catherine O'Hara as Sally, and William Hickey as mad scientist Dr. Finkelstein. At the time of pre-production, Burton had been fired by Disney, so he was already fully committed to Batman Returns and caught up in pre-production pre of Ed Wood, hence why he wasn't as hands-on as people tend to think when you think of Nightmare Before Christmas. I had caught a screening of Ed Edward Scissorhands at the Alamo Drafthouse a few years back, and I bought a special edition issue of this magazine called um, Birth, Movies, Death. And it's dedicated entirely to Tim Burton. And it's a really cool look at his works up until maybe Big Eyes. What I found interesting was an article written by Russ Fisher, which covers Burton's early years at CalArts and his early years at Disney. Now, an interesting quote by Burton regarding his art style um, is as follows, and this is from the article. Uh, Burton says, I don't care if I can draw or not. And he remembers realizing that he basically said, um, you know, I swear to God, from, from one second to the next... I had a freedom which I hadn't had before. And I think that realization came came to him early in his career 
at, at a perfect time because it, it ultimately helped him get to the point of where he's at right now. And that very thought is why you can separate him from any collection of directors and truly call him an auteur. As for Danny Elfman, from around 79 to 85, he was part of a new wave band called Oingo Boingo. And he was asked to compose the score for Pee-wee's Big Adventure for Tim Burton. And it's been a slew of constant collaborations ever since. I would put their collaborations right up there with Steven Spielberg and or George Lucas teaming with, with John Williams. He tends to use a lot of strings, brass, and woodwind along with piano. Uh, saxophone can be heard pretty prominently in this in this score in particular too, thanks to the um, the street band that plays in in Halloween Town. That said, our main character Jack is the king of Halloween, and he's tired of performing the same feats every year. He walks into a forest with his dog, Zero, and he takes a path through a cemetery with Sally um, kind of following behind and who kind of stays hidden. She she hears him sing or lament about how he's grown tired of the same old thing and, and through song, that song being uh, Jack's Lament. Uh, one lyric that, that stands out is from that song in particular, and he says, uh, or sings, But who here would ever understand that the pumpkin king with the skeleton grin would tire of his crown if they only understood he'd give it up, he'd give it all up if he only could. So here Jack is completely relatable in that he expresses that no one could ever understand or much less care about how he feels as long as um, they're getting a sense of enjoyment from his involvement in, you know, the, the festivities around Halloween. So it's here that Sally completely understands and, and feels for him. Uh, the next scene is Jack walking endlessly into the forest and he stumbles upon some trees with doorways on them. And... Each um, doorway kind of symbolizes a specific holiday, a specific holiday. Like um, one of the trees is shaped has a um, shape of an egg, symbolizing Easter. Uh, Four-leaf clover for St. Patrick's Day, and a Christmas tree, obviously for Christmas. And he's really taken by the tree, so he opens the door and falls through a, a portal, ending up in Christmas Town. Here he um, breaks into song again, singing, What's This? Uh, the song represents what he's experiencing as he looks around and adjusting to unfamiliar territory. Um, one lyric is, What's this? What's this? There's something very wrong. What's this? There's people singing songs. And let's not forget my favorite bit of that song. There are children throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads. They're busy building toys and absolutely no one's dead. <laughs> so through song, we experience his excitement and sense of wonder. It, it helps establish and justify his motives as the, the film progresses. Which, 
we learn that afterwards his intention is to bring Christmas to Halloween Town. So he assigns different tasks to different ghouls and monsters, like um, learning traditional Christmas carols. He tries teaching them the meaning behind gift-giving, uh, what Santa Claus, or what he refers to as Sandy Claus, means to Christmas, and so on. So he begins experimenting, and all the meanwhile, Sally has escaped her captor in Dr. Finkelstein, who basically has her held against her own will for most of the, most of the film. As she, as she drifts away from him and the locals, she, she sings her song, which shows concern for her, for her then unrequited love, Jack. Uh, an example of, um, a part of that song is, she says, I sense there's something in the wind that feels like tragedies at hand. And though I can't, and though I'd like to stand by him, I can't shake this feeling that I have. The worst is just around the bend. And does he notice my feelings for him? And will he see how much he means to me? I think it's not to be. Uh, this concern comes after Jack had Santa captured by Locke, Shock, and Barrel, who, who, um, unknown to Jack, brings Santa to his nemesis, Oogie Boogie, who has an interest in high-stakes gambling. And when I say high-stakes gambling, I mean gambling over someone's life. So Jack's intention is to take over for Santa this year and finds himself shot out of the sky by the military when he attempts to do so. Um, in short, Jack saves Sally and Santa, restores Halloween Town, and sends Santa back to Christmas Town in time to salvage what's left of Christmas. Uh, Santa flies by Halloween Town and brings real snow as it falls from the sky, uh, and only then does everyone seem to understand what it is that Jack was experiencing. Uh, Jack and Sally end with their own song. Um, one of the lyrics is in, you know, where we can gaze into the stars and sit together now and forever, for it's plain as anyone can see, we're simply meant to be. So everything's wrapped up in this nice bow by the end, right? And as a whole, kind of focusing on the song and lyric this go-around, I, I realized how important uh, Danny Elfman is to Tim Burton. And it's it's apparent in all their work, but especially here because the main focus was on uh, music and lyrical content. And it's it's not to um to take away from either of them, but I think Burton's films are so visually striking that the music only emphasizes that tenfold. Um, like I mentioned re regarding Batman Returns not too long ago, however many episodes ago that was, you could easily remove the um the in-between dialogue and follow the movie just as easily with only the music. Which is another thing I appreciated this go-around. I liked the fact that the transition between Chris Sarandon and Danny Elfman from dialogue to song is, is so seamless. They both have extremely similar an extremely similar tone and voice that you'd never guess that they 
each handle different aspects of Jack, which is actually kind of cool thinking about it now because Jack is so um, multi-layered and more than just bones. <laughs> um, like most of Burton's films, the, the visual aesthetic is there from German Expressionism in Halloween Town to sort of the, the Rankin-Bass Christmas cartoon aesthetic of the 60s, like um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus is Coming to Town that are used to kind of represent Christmas Town here, to the very mundane, everyday town where Jack is um, taking over for Santa and, you know, leaving horrible gifts for these kids and stuff like that. Um, even the neon glow in Oogie Boogie's lair is really interesting. But if not for Elfman, I wonder if this movie would have worked. Whether it's fate or coincidence, it's really hard to deny that the that they were basically meant to work together. Like I said, it's it's apparent in all of their films that they've worked together on that you can't really have one without the other. And I guess that's um, a good place to stop. I don't see these kind of episodes, um, the listener suggestions going on too long, but it's, an, it's a nice exercise in looking, at least for me, in... Um, looking at film through someone else's perspective, because ultimately my question was not only what's your favorite film, but why do you like it? And the ones that the individuals chose, I think, are really unique. Uh, some of them I hadn't seen in years or at all. So it's going to be really interesting to go into these films with um, someone else's perspective on why they like the film. And then just kind of make note of um, of why and see if it kind of aligns with my thoughts on the film. Um, with that, in case anyone was curious, um, some of the other films include The Thirteenth Warrior, um, Castaway on the Moon, and There Will Be Blood. So, I'm not too sure which one I'm going to tackle next. I really liked There Will Be Blood. Um, that was a Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson film. And the score to that is incredible. So, I, I think I might handle... I might talk about that one next. Or I might do something in between, because... Just last night, I... um. I rewatched The Wrestler, and I forgot how good that movie was. It's um, I really like the perspective in that film because of the way it's it's shot. Um, you're you're completely behind the character, literally, um, just because of how the camera is framed for certain parts of the film, and it's kind of a, a unique look at the world of professional wrestling. And those that know me well enough know that I love professional wrestling. I love it. Um, I don't like the, the amount of time that is required of us to kind of keep track 
you know, three hours is a bit much on Mondays, especially when you're just getting off work. So um, Mondays at six is usually a good nap time for me. I, I can sleep through the entirety of Monday Night Raw and just not regret it. <laughs> I'll catch a recap somewhere online or something, but good lord, there, I didn't. There, there's just so much of it, and uh, it's it's just too much. But the world of professional wrestling is really interesting. Um, I remember picking up on a lot of the, the terminology. There's like an entire glossary of terms that you can use or that are used um, behind the scenes uh, to refer to different uh, individuals in the wrestling business, like heels, faces. Um, ultimately, that's um, villains and good guys is one way to look at it. And a lot of those terms are used in the film, so I kind of want to talk about that next, just because it's such a good movie. Uh, it's very moving. Um, and it's a really cool world to delve into if you've never experienced wrestling to that extent, to the point of where you're looking up dirt sheets online and spoilers and getting in on the backstage drama that leaks. And it's really, really interesting. I think I'm going to actually do that next. So the next episode you can count on... Um, it's kind of a recap and an examination of Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. And after that, I'll probably do There Will Be Blood. So, again, this is coming out a little earlier than usual, having just released episode 25 a couple of days ago. And I'm really, again, just trying to make up for lost time. Um, and I really just felt the need to keep recording. So I'm doing this one not too long after... Um, the Last Jedi episode, and I, by now I kind of wish I had waited because my voice is um, giving out on me. I can feel it already, which goes to show you, um, you know, that's the life of an introvert. can remain dead silent for days until I absolutely have to talk to somebody, and it always ends up causing strain on the voice. Anywho, um, stay healthy. Thanks for tuning in. And I will see, or I guess I'll post a new episode Tuesday. So in about, what is today? Sunday. In about two days' time. And the, the episode after will probably be posted a week or two later. Uh, depending on how I feel. So thanks again for tuning in. Stay healthy, drink your water. And until next time.